Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode highlights ideas around rethinking the way cities are evolving. We discuss planning, design, technology, development, and other fields that contribute to the urban experience. My dad always felt like if you were going to go somewhere, you should learn something in the process. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think he was also, it was important to him that he under, that we understood as kids that there was a, a greater, bigger urban context out there and that we should be aware of it. On this episode, I'm speaking with Harry Spetnagel, Senior Associate and Design Director at Gensler. He's directed the design, documentation, and implementation of award-winning branded environment and wayfinding projects for several regional and national clients in the retail, hospitality, entertainment, and professional services industries over the last 13 years. An advocate of multidisciplinary design and strategic human-centered process, Harry is primarily interested in the development and thoughtful execution of innovative ideas that make people's day-to-day experiences and interactions with built environments better. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump on in. A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please share this track and others on your social accounts to people you think would be interested. Also, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is how we grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is driven by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working on tools and platforms to improve the urban space. You can find out more online at AuthenticFF.com. And finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas of who else we should speak with to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. Harry, thanks so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. So you have lived in a few places across the country, Mm -hmm. um, but you're a self-proclaimed Denver homer. You grew up in the Highlands neighborhood long before it was uh, considered to be as polished as it is today. Is that right? Yep. I grew up on 44th and King Street. And back when I grew up here, it was a little less, well, you use the word polished. It was still known as North Denver back then and was maybe a little more ethnically diverse and, and blue collar. It was a pretty normal existence up here growing up. My dad was a college professor. My mother was a uh, medical photographer. It wasn't edgy, like Compton edgy up uh-huh. here, but it was it was it was still pretty edgy neighborhood. I grew up riding my bike all around um, North Denver is a way to just see the city. Yeah, I'm I'm a cyclist as well. So when we when we have spoken a few times before, we kind of connected on that topic. But I'm I never really rode. Too much as a kid. I mean, a little bit around the neighborhood, but where did you find yourself riding around? And did you go with friends or was it always you sort of solo? I think bicycles are one of those things. They're the great liberator, right? Like when you're little and you want to get the hell away from your parents, it's a great vehicle to do that. Yeah. I don't know. My dad taught at the University of Denver. So in the summer when I was off, me and my friends would roads roads that are not bike lanes mind you down to the the south platte trail was which was in existence back then and we'd ride down to du which was familiar to me because i was you know always on that campus as a kid and that riding my bike sort of became my passion and 
for several years in high school, I raced my bike and in high school, I met a Jesuit priest. I went, we'll talk about that a little bit, but met a Jesuit priest that used to like to ride. So on Sundays we would, I'll say we skipped mass. We probably never did, but we'd ride up to Boulder to do that. So, and you did that on highway 93. Yeah. Um, you can't drive, people die on highway 93 now, but you can't do that now. I mean, you can, but it feels very, the, the hair on your arms would be standing up. That's for sure. Exactly. So you alluded to this, but you, you had an interesting high school experience. Is, Is that right? Yeah. So I, I went to Regis Jesuit high school when it was on the, it's on the same campus as the college, uh, where it is today. My father had gone there. Is an all guys school for those of you back then, you know, it's co-ed now, but it was an all guys school. And, you know, I like to say I got the full Jesuit experience in terms of education. You know, they're super rigorous. Examples would be, you know, we'd get these reading assignments and then we would be, it was free game to ask the definition, pronunciation, and use any word in that text in a sentence. And yeah. um, so any other uh extreme. Uh, examples that we can that can add color to this. Yeah, so the Jesuits at Regis, and I don't know if they still do this or not, but uh, they had the disciplinary action that a teacher had at his disposal was to give you what they called a jug, which stood for justice under God. Yikes. And basically, they could assign you, you know, it's like time after school, but they could assign you anything from running around the track, the high school track on your knees, pulling weeds for an hour to writing an essay about what you did and why it was terrible kind of thing. Oh, no. So it was, it was a true like justice is served moment for the kids. <laughs> yeah, always. Usually by a guy in a stiff white collar. <laughs> so Harry, beyond school itself. Around this time, you were telling me that seeds were being planted through family road trips. And I thought this was a really good part of your story. How did those trips really begin to influence your younger self? So, you know, my dad being a college professor and for a large portion of his career being the chairman of the mass comm department at uh, the University of Denver, he was a big believer in what I'd like to call educational vacations. Yeah. My mom grew up in New York, so um, we often took trips back to the East Coast, see the Met, the Smithsonian, things like that, art. And then we spent a lot of time also in the West visiting national parks. And so I think my dad always felt like if you were going to go somewhere, you should learn something in the process. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think he was also, it was important to him that he under, that we understood as kids that there was a a greater, bigger urban context out there and that we should be aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine, I mean, in those days, Denver was truly a cow town. I mean, it was a pretty small city. I mean, it's, it's not huge. Those, those are fighting words. Yeah. Is it? (laughs) But I mean, you were, you would go to New York city, which was like, you know, the big apple, that was the, the Mecca. Sure. Um, How did that, or, or did it begin to influence you in terms of the larger city, larger urban environments um, back then? Well, I think the one thing when you get away from Denver is you realize Denver is not on the whole an incredibly diverse city. Mm. We have some ethnic diversity. We have, you know, a 
pretty good spectrum of economic diversity. But I think Colorado and Denver in particular are really sort of a contrast between a rural existence and an urban existence. And I think what what we used to come back from those trips with was a broader perspective on in particularly in urban environments, how how diversity plays a, a much more significant role and how just exposure, I guess, to, you know, a broader population and different thoughts and, you know, ideas about how things should be organized. I mean, there was still nose in parking back then in Denver where you could drive right up to the front of a building downtown and just park on the street at nose in. And, and obviously, you know, places like New York had moved way beyond that and public transportation was a bigger thing and it's better now here. But yeah. And the audience probably knows what that means, but nose in parking, meaning downtown busy city streets, you can't waste time backing up into traffic and mm-hmm. expecting anyone to get anywhere. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, if you did it today, there'd be accidents everywhere. But. Yeah. So where did you, where did you go from there? Where did you end up for college? I ended up on a sweet deal. Um, as I mentioned, my dad was a professor at the University of Denver. So I went, I wanted to go to San Jose State <laughs> because I was excited about California, but I ended up going to DU because I got a 90% tuition waiver to go there mm-hmm. and then get that in a work study job and you can get a four-year college education for, you know, seven grand back yeah. then. So I think I ended up there largely because, you know, there wasn't a huge motivation to leave Colorado and the deal was so sweet. And to be honest, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up or, you know, when I was going to college, what I wanted to study. Right. Did you feel like the college experience was better or worse because of the connection with your, with your dad or did that play any role in um, your experience? I actually intentionally did not visit my father my whole time I was in college. Um, and actually I'm the third, he's the second. So we have the same name. Okay. So you know, because he had been there for so long, it's one of those rare occasions where you have to go around and everybody says, oh, I know you're dead. Right. So I tried it every possible way to duck that the whole time. So what did you, what did you get into? Like on the, on the studies side, were you already a designer by that point, already sort of thinking about urban environments and design or what, what did that trail look like for you? Well, like I mentioned, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And my dad was one of those people who, product of the 60s, I guess, he was like, you know, college is about finding out who you are, try whatever you want. You know, you don't have to pick a profession. You need to follow your heart and follow the things that you love. So I met a professor, this guy, Joe Beaton, who I just thought was a really interesting dude. And he taught geography classes and I took one as a survey class and just sort of took everything this guy taught. And then I found myself, you know, halfway through my junior year going, well, I can get a major in geography. Didn't know what I was going to do with it, but, you know, I could do that. I was really interested in the cultural aspects of geography, sort of different perspectives from different parts of the world and how just the mores and values of people differs, you know, depending on where you came from. DU has a big international population. So we had lots of kids from the Middle East. 
And there's nothing like talking about the Middle East from a Western perspective with people who actually live there. So um, those were really interesting conversations. I didn't really end up doing that. So I ended up, you know, sort of stumbling into the art department later as I went on following a an attractive woman <laughs> into the art school. I think there might be a story there. Yeah, you know, I I I it's it's almost cliche, right? The uh saw a girl on campus, found out she was in the art school, signed up for an art class, loved studio in art class. I thought that was, mm. you know, great hanging out, making stuff was, you know, really cool. So I ended up with a, you know, a double major in fine art or studio art. Yeah. And, and for, for non art majors out there, I'm actually a, an art major myself at, at the core and studio classes being the classes where you go and you sort of buckle down and you work for four to six hours on your craft basically. And you kind of, you can lose yourself in the work and you can hang out with friends and sort of, uh, at least in my experience, even kind of listen to music and just sort of be artistic as they say. Yep. Yeah. I think there was a lot of that. And for me, it was also a vehicle to express myself in ways that weren't term papers. (laughs) So it was good. Well, I know, I know how the story ends because you did not leave school and end up a professional artist so at this point, yep. school's over. You're, you're kind of moving on. Art classes are in the books. Right. Studios in the rearview mirror. What? What now? What? What happened professionally? Well, so the first job I took out of college was working for the commerce department. I was, you know, sort of intrigued by, you know, how can I put this geography degree to work? So I ended up working as a geographer for the 1990 census. Um, we were digitizing plat maps and, you know, sort of old school digitization too. They had a, just a little sidebar, they had a file called the Tiger file at the time, which was the first sort of big GIS graphic information systems file that the government put together. So we were literally manually inputting all these data points into this file. No way. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. I worked there for about, you know, four or five months and realized really quickly that um, Tiger wasn't for you. Tiger was <laughs> the Tiger file was too much. And that there's the, you know, the things that get said about government bureaucracy, I think, are <laughs> grounded in some some level of truth. So realized it wasn't for me and left there, um, went back to work as a bike mechanic, actually just because it was familiar to me and I knew I could do it. Had a little time off. I took a bike ride from Breckenridge, Colorado to St. Louis, Missouri by myself just to um, visit an old roommate of mine from college who was going to grad school at Wash U. Yeah. Um, That's fun. That, so it was sort of like a time of finding yourself on some level. Yeah. Kind of figuring I mean, out what came after the tiger months really yeah i mean there's there's one sort of salient moment where i was riding through um kansas and there's a little roadside sign that says you know the sod hut that george washington carver grew up in was at the side of the road and i was like it was the most random bizarre thing right but it's one of those things that triggered 
history lessons from eighth grade or whatever. The other, you know, sort of thing is it gives you perspective. Um, We were, as I was leaving Eastern Colorado, I was down at the site of the Sand Creek Massacre. What was really crazy is to realize that that happened in a place that even today is remote and desolate. And so regardless of how history portrays that event, Fort Sumner was literally miles away and those soldiers would have had to intentionally have, you know, sort of packed up and come that direction. Mm. So, you know, it just gave me a sort of a more visceral perspective of those kinds of events. Mm. And then after those trips, um, I ended up moving to Los Angeles briefly. I had reconnected with a girl I dated in high school and, she then became my wife and we moved to um, Los Angeles and I worked at an art materials store there, met a lot of students from Art Center. I ended up building props for television and, you know, sitcoms for about three years, which was kind of weird, random and fun. There was a show called Sisters um, that, you know, we'd have to recreate these sketchbooks one of the lead characters was a budding artist and she worked in her garage. And so I spent a few weeks like sketching, filling these books with sketches for a, you know, what amounted to a five second cameo in one of the episodes. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. So you did basically odd jobs for a few years. You were in LA. It seems like that's sort of a a storyline that a lot of people have where they go to a big city for a while. They kind of, hit some odd jobs, they experience different, you know, touch points of a, of a cultural makeup of a particular area. And then in your case, you came back to Denver after living in LA for a while. What did that look like? Cause you're in a way you're kind of coming, coming back home, but now you're sort of a professional. So what did that, what did that look like? Honestly, the transition back to Denver was a little odd. I mean, the, the big motivator for coming back is my wife and I decided, well, she's my wife now. At the time we were, you know, still dating and we decided to get married and there's family on both sides of the family here. So coming back made that easier at the time. And then she was working as a dietitian in Swedish Medical Center locally and was consulting with a woman whose husband was a sign painter. And so through some vicarious introduction there, I met this guy, uh, George Beard, who had been a, you know, a sign painter and a sign maker for, I don't know, a good portion of his career. And um, for whatever reason, we just hit it off. He ended up selling me his business on payments, which like never happens, right? Like we had some connection. So he allowed me to work his client base to pay him off to buy the business. And, you know, so I did that and did that for about 10 years. Wow. And so from LA prop maker to Denver to owning a sign painting business, if I got Mm -hmm. that right. Yep. And you did that for about 10 more years, which isn't a short amount of time. No, I loved it too. You did. I mean, yeah, it, it was, I think it was sort of, you know, the, the perfect balance in the beginning, it was sort of the perfect balance between 
you know, the hands-on aspects of art school and creativity and, and that. And then, you know, I learned a lot of lessons about business during that time too. So I did that for about 10 years. And basically what undid it for me was, you know, sort of the, you know, the HR and just sort of running a business inevitably as a small enterprise, you know, the, the founder finds himself doing something that isn't really why I got in the business mm-hmm. in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I took an opportunity where I had a couple of my folks who were, you know, moving on and moving out to consider some other options and a local sign company in town. It's a pretty small community. So we all sort of, <laughs> you know, know each other. Yeah. Um, they had just won a contract for Invesco Field and wanted a project manager for that project. So I went ahead and, you know, sort of jumped on there thinking I would be there for a year or two and ended up staying there for six years. <laughs> wow. And, and there's something that happens there. There's a transition there, which right. links it to Gensler. And, and what yep. is what is that connection? So while I was at Arapahoe, we built several projects for Gensler. And, you know, I became fascinated with the firm a little bit just from the standpoint of I knew I didn't want to stay at Arapahoe any longer. I'd sort of run its course at six years and I was looking to get back on the design side of things, but also, you know, intrigued by this aspect of maybe potentially doing global work in a, in a, you know, in my own hometown, right. Being able to work on global profile clients and that kind of thing. So I interviewed with somebody that I had built a project for at Gensler and, you know, came back the next day and was told, you know, yeah, you should come in here and, you know, talk to some other people. So that's sort of how it started. And for anyone tracking timelines, this is roughly 2006, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So 2006, you're you're interviewed basically through the connection of a job you had at Arapahoe. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you find yourself inside Gensler looking at a career path that puts you back on the design side of things. Yep. So what happens next? Well, I mean, my first day was, um, you know, my whole life story is kind of like Lemony Snicket's, right? Like a series of crazy and unfortunate events. But my first day, the the person who had interviewed me, I found out had quit. So it was just me and this designer, Amy Siegel, that, you know, I had done work for that I, you know, we ended up, um, as it was described to me, we were co-leading a group of two at the time. So, you know, that's always an interesting... That's a good ratio. Yeah, it's a good ratio. Everybody's a leader. Everybody gets a medal, but, you know, it makes decision-making kind of difficult mm-hmm. sometimes. And so over the time at Gensler, you know, I've really been responsible for growing the group through mutual decision-making. You know, I sort of took on some leadership aspects and she went in a different way and we found interesting ways to keep our realms or spheres of influence integrated, but not necessarily overlapping on everything. So I think that, you know, sort of organically um, worked. And then I just out of necessity, you know, I think people, you know, say they choose things. I think some people are just, you know, they fall into things and they find out they're good at them. So they end up there. Um, So I ended up at the sort of the sharp end of the stick. Now we have 
with business development, we have 10 people under our leadership. And, you know, my job is largely managing, hiring talent and making sure we have enough work. And you and Amy still work together today. Is that right? We still do. That's great. That's yeah. kind of a cool story within the story, I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, it's we're... Not, it's been 13 years? Yeah. Going on 14? 13. That's pretty wild. That's a long time, a right? Run. Nobody stays in the same place that long anymore, right? Well, so we started at, at 2000, the year 2006. Obviously, we're now 13, 14 years in the future, but kind of looking back in retrospect, what do you feel like has been the biggest source of excitement um, over the last decade, having taken over a leadership role and kind of building that team up along with Amy? What, what do you reflect on as being exciting, invigorating, and kind of something that you're proud of? I think right now the most exciting aspect of the work that we do is sort of centered around the convergence that's happening in the design profession. You know, I think when when I started in design, everybody had a lane, right? Like you had I did people who did identity work, you had TV, radio, advertising, burgeoning environmental graphics work. But now I think we have this interesting, you know, sort of convergence and melding together of things like under the context or auspices of user experience, we have, you know, sort of digital interfaces and, you know, meeting in the physical realm and how they converge and how they inform each other. Gensler is primarily architects and interior designers, but we are also design consultants to several big industries that are dealing directly with this in their business models. So, you know, how are they grappling with and accommodating that and how, you know, their needs have sort of driven our needs, right? So we need more, you know, strategists and motion designers and video people and storytelling has become a bigger and bigger component of what we do. And, you know, we just can no longer play lip service to these needs. For me, this is the the meat of, of the conversation and why I'm really excited that we're talking because you make a great point with regards to the lanes. I mean, identity, TV, radio, traditional advertisement, and you meet with a client today and they, they expect you to be a, a catch-all shop, yep. you know, a, a team that wears many hats that can do all of those things, or maybe even a single person on the team that can do three of those things. And then the next person can do the three other things. And it's kind of like this Swiss army knife of expectations. That's really shifted. It's a, it's been a, a big shift, I would say in the design industry, even in the last, what, 10 years or so. Yeah. Um, and we're not even, we don't even need to go back to the Don Draper era to see that it's been evolving, um, I would say, ever more rapidly since the late 90s when the internet became so prevalent. Yeah, I think some of that's driven by the technology. And then I think some of it, too, is, you know, it's a hyper competitive marketplace, no matter what you do. And so I think there's a lot of people looking for that next thing, that next tool for engagement, that next wow moment. We now describe pieces of projects as the Instagram moment, yeah. you know? So it's, I, I feel like it's an ever evolving thing, but the sort of speed to market requires people to be practitioners and be competent in all of those things. 
So how do you find yourself approaching projects at Gensler knowing that these are the expectations of the modern client? Feel free to share an example or two, but I'm, I'm curious at the level of a global firm like Gensler, what's the mindset um, going into these projects? Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. We did some work with the Philadelphia Eagles, a lot of work around developing. Everybody starts out thinking, you know, what we need is an app, right? Everyone needs an app, for, and but but for no particular reason, right? Exactly. And the Eagles were looking to do was really improve the stadium experience, and so communicate in real time with their fans and with the team potentially. But what what we came to understand is that, you know, part of what makes a difference and moves the needle for people is, you know, sort of aspects of those tools that make your life better. And by that, I mean, if you are getting up to get away from the game to go to the bathroom and this app can tell you where the shortest line is or, you know, who's got the deal on food and in the stadium in real time, it turns out that those things are more highly valued than whether or not you can have on-demand stats for whoever's carrying the ball at the time. So it really becomes about, well, earlier you said user experience, but it's sort of enhancing those experience, as you said, in real time. So maybe you're not shoving another screen in their face or overwhelming them with five different apps to download. You're trying to make that experience at the stadium as cohesive as possible using digital tools, but maybe not over-engineering it into something that doesn't necessarily need to be. Is that right? Right. And I think, you know, the the big million-dollar question is what does it need to be, right? And I think we're all sort of grappling with that. And the default is, you know, eye candy and things that draw eyeballs to it. But at the end of the day, I think as a Firm, what we're really looking at is how can we make technology facilitate interactions within physical spaces rather than just pushing content at you? Mm. How can we make technology feel seamless and integrated? And how do we really take an experience from good to great? And what does that really mean? Mm. If you have any off the top of your head, what what would be another example or two of, and I wrote this down, facilitating interactions within physical space. I think that's a really poignant way to, to put it. How can we seamlessly have this feeling of interaction with, you know, on the backbone of technology, where we are without it becoming an overwhelming, almost line crossing situation? I mean, think about, the experience of airline travel up until I would say probably up until 9-11 in this country, it was, it was probably better in the early days, you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s, but it was an experientially driven process, right? I mean, you would pull into the airport, you would go, there was a lounge, there was no TSA, there was no taking your shoes and your belt off, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. And it was this, you know, it was a thing that not everybody could do, right? So it had that sort of cachet to it. I think today, you know, if you really want to change people's lives in an airport, what we really need to be focused on is how do you make security every bit as effective, 
but how do you make it disappear? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, those, those are the kinds of challenges we're, we're looking at and trying to, there's, there's a belief that if you can, if you can ch- tick the box on the security aspect of it, that you can bring back some of that allure to travel yeah. right now. It feels like the worst bus experience you've ever had. Everything's hot. Everything's sweaty. Everything takes too long. And that, that makes me think of, you know, the difference between just regular security lines, TSA pre-check and, now there's a private organization that's partnered with the the government on in clear mm-hmm. yep. program called clear, which is actually something this isn't a plug, but it's something that I signed up for sure. to try to achieve exactly what you're talking about. How can I get through that part of the process as seamlessly as possible? So I'm not just hating myself by the time I find, I mean, just, just using that as an example, as somebody who travels quite a bit as well, pre-check and clear aren't available everywhere, right? They're not ubiquitous. And so while those are steps in the right direction, I've also, you know, seen the disappointment that is, how come your airport doesn't have pre-check? Or there are so many people queued up at pre-check that you, you know, you can actually blow through the other line. Um, You know, I guess my point here is that, you know, it could be better. And I think we're, we're actively trying to pursue making it better. Yeah. And, and I think in my podcast notes here, you mentioned it being a million dollar idea. And I guess how does one get to the million dollar idea? I mean, how do you crack the code? I think part of it is a deep understanding of what motivates technology purchase in airports today. I mean, five, six years ago, Everybody wanted an app again and digital signage in airports Mm -hmm. and it's standalone network was easy enough to create, but something that they could from an airport security standpoint manage and or support on their backbone was a bigger problem, right? Um, You're dealing with all sorts of legacy systems and things like that. So I think security is the next sort of nut to crack and that unfortunately isn't all controlled by the airports themselves. I mean, there's a government component to all of that. Mm. And so I think, you know, we all sort of say it, you know, standardization is, you know, boring and, you know, but the other part of this is these solutions are all being generated in a world where there aren't any sort of hard and fast rules in terms of, you know, information standards. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't talk about this in our, yeah. uh, in our pre podcast chat. So I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but something that I've been reading a lot more about, or at least surfacing a lot more is this idea of kind of taking wearables a step further into something that's actually implanted into us, whether that's Mm -hmm. on the banking side or um, something's coded to us that gives us our identity underneath the skin do you see it going that way or is that just sort of a sci-fi thing? Or are you, are you actually hearing and seeing rumblings of that could be something that ultimately makes this technology layer a little bit more seamless and, and integrated into the process? Well, if what I was describing before is the million dollar idea, I think that's sort of the billion dollar idea, yeah, right? Okay. <laughs> um, so like you, you've probably seen these, 
you know, people have taken it upon themselves to put all sorts of equipment under their skin and are, you know, there's a sort of subculture of bleeding edge technocrats who are, Quite literally. you know, looking at those kinds of things. But um, I'm a big fan of William Gibson novels. I don't know if you're familiar with him, science fiction writer, um, sort of a futurist. Actually, he's more of a futurist than a science fiction writer, but a lot of his stories are grounded in, you know, sort of what happens to data in the future and how is it transmitted. And one of the ideas from um, a book he wrote in the 80s, I think, called Johnny Mnemonic, was that the safest way to transport data in the future is going to be to download it into some storage mechanism in somebody's head and manually physically move the data to wherever it needs to be uploaded. And the premise there is that that's the most secure way to transport data and it, it lives inside a human being. And so it's not traceable. You know, it's an idea that, like I said, I think I read the first book in like 1988 or something like that. But those kinds of ideas I think are, becoming more and more of a reality. We do some work with Microsoft as well. We did some sort of accessibility studies for a campus wayfinding program. Um, and it, what was amazing is we got to see some of their, you know, their skunk works and the things that they're talking about. And so, you know, for people who are site challenged, they're, you know, talking about devices that you can put in your ear that sort of create soundscapes with your jawbone and other aspects like that. So mm. I think the wearable idea is only going to progress. Whether or not it ends up physically inside of you somehow, I think is a whole other ethical conversation. Yeah for people who are probably more educated than I am on those topics. But. Yeah. What's interesting is that we're, we're coming up to a point now where we have the, in parallel, we have the technology evolving and the technologies, you know, on the bleeding edge of where it can be almost daily. There's something new that comes out and yet it's in parallel with what do we do about the, the data and the, the gray area of what's too far and where do we draw the line? What is, at least at this point, what's Gensler's stance on what's too far, what's right up? Because I know that in order to progress and to be a leading business, you have to take risk. But uh, as we were talking before we hopped on, there's a fine line somewhere. And I think it's, it's still, we don't know what that line is yet. Sure. And I, I, you know, I think all the ethical ramifications, if you look at Cambridge Analytica and the elections and Brexit and, you know, all the things that have sort of come out recently about that, the truth, you know, in a nutshell, there are tremendous amounts of data out there that are being monetized for very, a whole myriad of uses, you know, some of them for the good and some of them maybe for the nefarious, you know, it's hard to, yeah. to sort of quantify that. I think as Gensler, our core business historically has been architecture and the built environment. And so a lot of what we bring to projects from a technology standpoint is through partnership and 
consultants, you know? And so from our standpoint, we have to sort of scratch the surface as to where, you know, what's behind the technology and how we do it. I think, you know, before we started, I was relaying a story to you where one of the first, you know, sort of digital interventions in an office lobby that we had done was tapping security camera footage to create generative art, right? So Mm -hmm. the people recorded moving through the space became the data set for this basically processing program that generated artwork in the lobby. Did anybody know that we were, you know, taking the feed off of the security camera? The building owners did, but nobody who walked through that facility did. No one knew that they were art necessarily. Right, right. So you start to, you, you know, that's a pretty low hanging example and probably marginally okay yeah. from a, you know, from an ethical standpoint, but it does sort of, you know, bring up the question, like, where is that line? Where does the, you know, where is the data that you're using for any of these things? Personalization of an experience in a hotel, for example, mm-hmm. does the client opt into that? Are you facilitating needs and desires that they've made known to you proactively, or are we anticipating somebody's experience based on data that is profiled, scraped off of Facebook, Instagram, you know, who knows, right? So I think those are all challenges for sure. So as we start to wrap up here, I want to know where you think all this is going, which is a huge question, but let's put it in the context of what you think is next for you and your team. And when we think about this new wave of user experience and sort of human-centered design, what, what are you excited about? What are you um, anticipating coming down the pipeline? I think we do have to stay focused on the human in human-centered design, right? Um, And by that, I would drag to the table, you know, that we need to be inclusive and empathetic to a diversity of populations and end users. And and that takes different meaning in different applications. You know, the wayfinding example I gave you, um, you have whole populations of people who are, you know, handicapped in one way or another. And so how do you build systems that accommodate those folks too. I mean, we all talk about the millennial with the phone in their hand, but that's a percentage of the population, you know? Um, We're also creating environments that are actually terrible for people in their 70s and 80s because they can't see things, you know, typography is too small, all these things. And so, I mean, we just have to be aware of that. And then I think, you know, in terms of how personalization relates to big data, we touched on this few minutes ago, but I think that's really, that's going to play out as a big, big hurdle. Um, And, you know, I think there are ethical things. I think there are legal aspects to it. I think there will be, I don't know, maybe the pendulum will swing. I mean, we've sort of come out of this, you know, situation where people are seemingly okay with, you know, everything from your heart rate monitor to, you know, the GPS in your car to, your social channels mm-hmm. and they're fine with that information just flying around out there. But mm-hmm. when um, I can't remember um, who it was, there was somebody at Microsoft who had volunteered to live in a, you know, a completely internet of things 
supported house. And her story was that there were aspects of that where the, you know, the house is talking to you and suggesting things that you were actually thinking, but hadn't articulated yet within the auspices of this environment. Mm -hmm. And ultimately she bagged out of it because it just got completely creepy. I won't go into the specifics of how it got creepy, but let's just say it was deeply personal and um, completely, you know, out of left field. That's so one, I think I need to Google that one. Yeah, you, you can. It's out there on the internet. Okay. You can look it up. I, okay. I can't remember the woman's name right off the hand, but if you look, Internet of Things study. Okay. Anyway, so I think you know the other thing we need to focus on really is creating better, longer lasting solutions rather than these sort of one off experiences. I mean, I think that's the challenge, right? The the generative art thing is really about, you know, can a data set create something unique over and over based on, you know, how it's interpreted. And I think that's low hanging fruit, but we start to think about personalization and those kinds of experiences. It's like, how do you create something that evolves over time so that just because you say you like cotton sheets once doesn't mean that they never, you never try anything else. Yeah. That's that's all good points. Those are all good points to to think about and to to consider. And and Harry, I, I appreciate your time today. And I I, sure. I always like to finish with one more one more question, the cherry on top. And you have had so much interesting stuff to talk about here. I want to know who you're looking towards. So who else should we be paying attention to that's doing groundbreaking or inspiring work that you want to mention? When you put this question to me, I was I was struggling. Like, will I be evaluated by the people that I list here? <laughs> um, but I did. I did have a few. Um, some of them are you know more topical just because they're current. Um, but I did hear Andy Cruz from House Industries speak. And for those of you who aren't familiar with his work, it's a typography foundry that was started you know several years now ago. But you know the sort of thrust of it was these guy's passion for sort of historical typography around hot rods and punk rock posters and everything. And what I think is really amazing is that over the years, they've created typefaces for everything from Nutraface, which, you know, a lot of people have used, um, which was really a ode to, you know, Richard Nutra and the sort of modernist housing movement. Mm. But what was really, why I think they're really relevant is that they've created typefaces that have just almost melded into people's everyday experience, right? Yeah. The title for Ice Age is one of their typefaces, you know? I mean, it's, it's just like everybody has seen them mm-hmm. and they don't really know where they came from. They seem oddly familiar. And I think that's that sort of line that they're pushing between, you know, something brought from history and sort of made modern again. Mm. I like Jessica Walsh. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she and graphic designer named Stefan Sagmeister started a studio in uh, New York. They became partners and it was Sagmeister and Walsh. She's just recently spun off um, from that because she's really passionate about photography and motion graphics work. Is also really passionate about supporting female uh, designers and giving them a platform to, you know, sort of reach the higher ranks of uh, the design profession. 
And so I think two weeks ago they spun off and I just, I, I love their work. I love her. I think she's, you know, doing great things. Digital Kitchen. I don't know if you're familiar with those guys, but yeah. they content creators. I think I fly through LAX all the time and the Bradley terminal there um, is probably, you know, it's getting long in the tooth. It's been there for a few years now, but it's still probably one of the most effective deployments of digital in a grand scale, at least that I'm aware of, you know, where normal everyday people are walking through. It's not a gallery setting or something like that. So I think that's, you know, their work is really great. I mentioned Stefan Sagmeister. I mean, he's just probably my great, my favorite graphic designer. Another guy I wanted to bring up um, is Rafik Anadol, who's a sort of a guy who operates in the space between fine art and big data. Hmm. And if you get a chance to to look him up, he's really doing some interesting things with, um, you know, big data sets and how they can be used to create generative art. And then, you know, as I mentioned before earlier, I guess should all be reading William Gibson. Because, Sounds like it. Because <laughs> you'll read those books. Some of those books are almost 20 years old and you'll read them and you go, holy shit, this is happening today. Yeah. Pick them up. That's super cool. Read them. Especially if you're, you know, they're, they're wrapped around this idea that brands in the future will control the world. So... Check so that, out. that's a not so subtle plug for everyone to go out and get some William Gibson books. Off there, the shelf. there you go. Um, Harry, thanks again so much for joining me today. Before we jump off, tell the world what you're up to and where they can find you online. If there's any particular links that you want to sh- give a shout out to. You can find me online. I'm not like you may have picked up on this. I'm a little, you know, <laughs> I'm a little protective of my private uh, data, but um I am on Instagram at skeezit. Don't ask. It's we'll just link, a mod, it's a handle that we'll, has been with yep. me for a while. We'll link to that. You can connect uh, through the Gensler website, which is www.gensler.com. Uh, my email address, uh, Harry underscore Spetnagel at Gensler.com. Obviously on LinkedIn as well. What I'm doing now just going to go home and think about this small 10 million square foot destination resort we're repositioning in Macau. All right. With, with that being said, Harry, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.